I'm Tim O'Brien, and you're listening to Longest War. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. But we must not let this mask the simple fact that this is really war. It is guided by North Vietnam, and it is spurred by Communist China. Its goal is to conquer the South, to defeat American power, and to extend the Asiatic dominion of communism. We do not want an expanding struggle with consequences that no one can foresee, nor will we bluster or bully or flaunt our power. But we will not surrender. Hello. Hi, Tim. This is Nick. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us for this podcast. I'm super excited, but I don't think I can remember the last time I was this nervous to interview someone. <laughs> well, don't be nervous. It'll be easy. We'll get into it through the interview, but the things they carried has had such a profound impact on me as an adult. I'm a army vet as well. I did two tours in Afghanistan, and I read things they carried once I got home, and it was just such a moving book for me. Oh, good. good. I'm glad it made you feel something. Yeah, it made me feel everything. So I'm so nervous. These first two questions probably aren't going to be very good because um, I'm just trying to compose myself. So if we'll get through, if you can bear with me through those and sure. All right. So you were drafted in '68 and went to Vietnam in '69. Um, and at the time, you were strongly opposed to the war before you went. Uh, yeah, I was. I was. Did it change or reinforce your opinion of the war, like in ways that you didn't expect? Like, were you against the war for certain reasons and then get there? And it evolves into you're against the war for different reasons? No, the reasons remain pretty much the same. Um, it was so unclear as to whether the war was right or wrong. Um, even at home, the whole country was divided. My family was divided. My mom was for the war and my dad was against it. My hometown was pretty equally divided. And when you're 21 years old or 22, you're too young to know enough about politics and you know global commitments and whether our national interest was really threatened or not it just seemed everything seemed so uncertain it was so unlike what my dad had gone through in world war ii where it was you know the righteous war and country more or less supported in fact almost completely supported and vietnam itself when i got there pretty much just validated everything that i had thought at home we didn't seem to be helping anyone very much. We seemed to be killing a lot of people, not all of them the enemy. And uh, I found myself like, sort of identifying with these poor villagers, you know, all these white guys walking through their rice paddies and, you know, storming into their villages and kicking over jars of rice and frisking them and ordering them around and burning their houses, calling in artillery and gunships on their villages if we took a round or two of sniper fire. And I just thought, well, how would that go down in Sioux City or Dubuque or Pittsburgh? You know, I don't think it would go down very well. So I, I, I think my opinions were strengthened. My opposition to the war was strengthened by what I saw over there. You mentioned like kicking over rice cans and stuff, and it reminds me of um, one of the stories you tell in If I Die in a Combat Zone of uh, the nice 
old man, the old Papa San at the village that you guys were bathing. And one of the right. other GIs throws a milk carton and hits him in the face. And, you know, the guy's bleeding from it. And then he just collects himself and keeps smiling and keeps helping out. Like, was that, that's obviously, it's not a war crime, right? But it's not the way, you know, decent people interact with each other. Were, were scenes like that relatively common? Yeah, they were too common. And I think that the Vietnam was an anomaly. I don't think, I'm sure there were, you know, little petty atrocities like that in every war. But in Vietnam, they seemed regular. Um, you know, every day something on that order would happen. It wouldn't be a milk carton thrown in a guy's face. It would be something else. Um, but it happened so regularly. It had to do in part with racism, I think. It had to do with poverty. These people looked impoverished. It had to do with not speaking a word of the language. It had to do with not being able to ever find the enemy. They found us, but we didn't find them. It was their land. Um, it wasn't uh, the World War II kind of our world, even the World War One model where the enemy's over there and we're here and let's go fight them. It was war fought in the midst of all kinds of confusion. The enemy was behind us and they were up in the trees and they were down in tunnels beneath our feet. And it wasn't that sort of, you know, there's a trench line here and a trench line there. It wasn't the model I'd grown up with watching war movies that came out of World War II. Right. Well, I'm glad you actually mentioned those previous two wars. Um, so, like, Kurt Vonnegut probably would not have written Slaughterhouse-Five had he not been in Dresden during the bombings. Um, Hemingway wouldn't have written A Farewell to Arms had it not been for his experiences in World War I as an ambulance driver. Given that mm -hmm. you've had such a prolific career writing about Vietnam, if you were given the choice to go back and do it all over again, would you? Well, it's a great question, and I'm, I don't have the answer for it. I don't know. I like to tell myself I'd have the courage of my conscience and do what I think is right. But that's easier said than done. That, that it's such a hypothetical that back then I was I was worried about how my hometown would view me as a sissy or a coward and how my mom and dad would view me and my girlfriend and all my friends. Um that your reputation is kind of on the line. Even if you do oppose a war, you're worried about hurting other people or having them think badly of you. And you're worried about things like humiliation and ridicule and all that stuff. And at the time, because I guess I was too young, I wasn't able to do what I thought was right, which is say no and take the consequences. Our country has a long, long tradition of civil disobedience going back to Henry David Thoreau, going back even to Abraham Lincoln was opposed to the Mexican War and said so aloud and took the consequences. It was a very unpopular position. And it takes a certain courage that's not the same as physical courage. I think it's even harder than, you know, standing up under fire and advancing and doing all the things you do physically. There's something psychological, maybe it's something wrong with me, where... To this day, I have trouble saying no to people. I want people to like me. And, and so I just you know, go along with a lot of things I probably shouldn't go along with. That's interesting. Do you still keep in touch with any of the guys you served with? Uh, I, I don't know if, if you use their real names, but you had one friend that you corresponded with quite a bit in Vietnam. Eric is what, I, what you called him. And if I don't mm -hmm. combat zone. Do you, do you still keep in touch with any of those guys? I do. Yeah, he's still a good friend of mine. We see each other occasionally. And I see he wasn't in my unit. I, he was in my basic training. He became a lifelong friend. But I also have him in touch with the guys I served with in Alpha Company. And I don't see them a lot. I see them occasionally. They'll come to talks, I give, if they happen to live in that city. 
So over the years, I've spoken to probably, I don't know, 30 of these guys that I had once served with. And we get along great. It's like seeing a long-lost brother in a lot of ways, even if our politics might be totally different. Right. They, we're, we're still friends, and we went through the same stuff together, and we kept each other alive as best we could. And we, as you know, because you've been in a war, you know, it's not all grim and sober. There's humor and pranks and a lot of horseplay and laughter and telling stories about our lives to each other. And because death is always around you and it's always on your mind if you're actually a combat veteran or a combat soldier. I mean, it sort of compresses that brotherhood feeling. There's, there's, these may be the last people you really know. And you're sharing that sense of maybe tomorrow or maybe an hour from now, it'll all be over and I'll be dead. And you share that. And it somehow makes makes everything more intense, tightens your, tightens your awareness of how alive you are because you're almost dead all the time. Right. So that's interesting you say that. I, I keep in contact with a lot of my buddies, and but I don't see them in person very much at all. It's just mostly on social media. But in November, I went out to Seattle and I saw two guys, my, probably my two closest friends that I served with. And when I came back home, my wife asked me, she's like, what did you guys talk about? And I thought about it. And, you know, we talked about like what we were doing with our lives. Like we didn't talk about the war at all. Do you have that same experience? Do you guys talk about the war or do you just talk about your lives now? Yeah, we do talk about it. It's not like with you. It was not. It's not the dominant thing to talk about. We talk about our lives and our kids, and you know the stuff that's going on now. But every now and then, somebody will ask more or less a question, like, "What do you remember about that day? And what did you see?" And it's shocking sometimes to find out that people don't remember at all the things I remember, like nothing, or they remember it from a totally different angle. They were, you know, 30 meters away or 100 meters away when things happened, and they didn't see what I saw. They saw something else that was part of the same event. And it's amazing how if you have five guys who are in the same firefight, five guys are going to have pretty much different stories to tell because the angle of vision and what they were doing, and it's so chaotic, as you know, in, in combat, that you only get a sliver of what's happening all around you. And so it's sort of like filling in a puzzle. Like you have a piece of a jigsaw puzzle, and out of curiosity, you want to learn more about what else was happening around you and what's remembered. I think all of us, when we're talking about war itself, we're all slightly wondering, am I remembering this right? And did this really happen? And things like that. I totally understand. It's like you say in a firefight, you have five guys, and those five guys will remember the firefight differently. But if you hook them up to a polygraph, they're all telling the truth. Like they're all telling, yeah. I know that's a big thing for you is like, what, what is true? What is, you know, Absolutely. Uh, you know, sometimes the fictional truth is truer than the factual truth, which leads me to my, my next question. So if I die in a combat zone, one of the characters that really sticks with me is Major Calicles. Yes. You seem to have sort of an ambivalence towards him in the book. Uh, like on the one hand, he serves as somewhat of a... How did you describe like a defense attorney for the battalion, def having to defend the actions at uh, me live? But he also says to a reporter, show me a war where the civilians ever came out on top. And that seems to me like one of those statements that is like almost absolutely true. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, there's ambivalence. Nobody is black and nobody is white. We're all a mixture of good things and bad things and sort of a lot of stuff in between. And he was one of them. He could be... Uh, a real apologist for 
in the case of me Lai, he was an apologist for murder. This was murder, you know, two, three, four hundred defenseless teenagers and babies and old men, and old women, uh, none of whom had weapons. There was no firing going on. He was an apologist for it, saying, you know, they're all gooks. And if they weren't shooting, their brothers were and you might as well kill them, too. On the other hand, he could be, as you just said, he could be thoughtful. And he, he was pretty well-read guy, knew history. So he was a mixture of, of things. He uh, scared the hell out of me, I'll say that. But that night he took me. Took you out on the him. ambush? Out on the ambush. I mean, some ambush. It was a drunk major in me out in the middle of nowhere. It was just ridiculous. And he passes out in the field. <laughs> and he, he fell asleep, yeah. <laughs> So it, it, it was <laughs> that's an example of do I remember this? I mean, could this really have happened? Yet I know it did. In that moment when this is going on, you're laying there and you've got the claymore. Are you were you thinking to yourself like what the fuck is going on? Like what yeah, am I that's doing all out I here? Was thinking what the hell am I doing here? And did this guy wake up? And <laughs> and uh, it felt like I was in Alice in Wonderland down the tunnel on the world that <laughs> wasn't normal anymore. And, you know, I think that's an example of where, again, youth has a part of it. You know, now I would tell him to go fuck himself. I'm not going out there. You know, I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> if you want to go, go be my guest. Right. But back then, you know, when you're an enlisted man and you have an officer telling you to do something, you pretty much do it. And uh, I'd like to revisit myself as a, you know, 50-year-old guy getting the same order to go out on ambush in the middle of the night with somebody drunk. And I think now I would say no. Yeah, I, I know I've heard you in um, several interviews talk about your disdain for the officers and the fact that you had to salute your inferiors. Mm -hmm. I, I find that just such a, a funny statement to make because you never <laughs> you never would have uttered that out loud at the time, you know, but like that's for sure. In hindsight, like it's absolutely true. Like, you know, you're a E5 and you've got this fresh butter bar lieutenant who couldn't navigate mm -hmm. his way out of a wet paper bag. But there you are and you have to follow his orders. You do. It's the weirdest thing to put these young young guys in charge of grown men in combat. Very weird feeling. Yeah, some of these guys now, I mean, they look, they seemed old to me then. I had a 24-year-old platoon leader, first platoon I joined, and he felt like an old man to me. I was, what, 21, I guess, or two, somewhere. He was only two years older than I, but he felt, he felt old, probably because he was in command of this thing, when in fact he was, now he seems to me, he was just a spring chicken. <laughs> He was pretty competent, but many of the officers really were not. I think in the today's army, it's much different. Where I think there's much more competence among junior officers and even senior officers. But in my era, because of these guys were becoming officers, in part just you know, avoid Vietnam. They thought, well, if I go to OCS, maybe the war will end. <laughs> maybe it'll it'll be less dangerous when I get over there. It'll start to peter out. And some became officers just just because they didn't they wanted to sleep in a comfortable you know place when you go back to the rear uh the, but the training was the training of the officers was really pretty crappy yeah they just kind of churned them out instant ncos yeah they just cranked them out so so when i read the things he carried the first time it seemed to me that many of the stories in the book could be traced back to somewhat similar events you wrote about and if i die in a combat zone um when writing the things they carried like how intentional were you with fictionalizing these events versus misremembering how the events actually happened and filling in the holes with fictional accounts, given that there was like a 20 year gap between the two books. Does well, that make it's sense? It's a mixture of everything you just said. It makes total sense. Okay. And I know what you mean by some, there are some events that are recounted in both books. 
And if I die, the event is exactly as I remember it. It may be bad remembering, but it's as I remember it. And I tried to be faithful to the way I remembered the war in that first book. However, when it came time all those years later to write the things they carried, I had come to mistrust my own my own memory and realized that I'd been filling in gaps in my imagination of things I didn't know, making assumptions about why people did the things they did and just sort of making it up in my head because I didn't that 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 stuff had vanished and I didn't have it. Um, an example is the shooting of the buffalo. It occurs in both books, and I, I have a memory of shooting a buffalo, but I can't remember anything that preceded it, what caused us to do it, myself among the people. It wasn't just one guy shooting, and the whole, whole company had opened up on a water buffalo, not a baby water buffalo, but just a water buffalo. And I know there was anger in me, but what had caused it, I don't know. I know there was sorrow. I don't know what caused that. I can't remember. And uh, so when the story, when it came time and the things it carried, I wanted to have the same event happen, but add a, a before part to it with the death of Kurt Lemon and how Rat Kiley had been you know, full of grief and anger. Nothing to shoot back at or no enemy. You can't find them. And so he takes out his grief and anger on a baby water buffalo, uh, trying to hurt it and not necessarily just kill it, but first make it hurt the way he was hurting. And all that stuff was added, which helps me kind of understand what happened to me that day, why I opened up on that water buffalo and why the rest of my friends did. It had to be, it, you wouldn't do that if you were driving by a cornfield in Minnesota and saw a cow out there, you know, eating the corn. Or what, I don't know if cows eat corn or whatever, whatever they're doing. I think grass, maybe. I don't, I, mean, I think it's grass. And you wouldn't open up on it. You know, and I don't think you would anyway, without good cause. And so it's a way of, in a way, the things they carried was a way of revisiting my own history and getting in touch with uh, a part of myself that uh, at the time felt inexplicable. It's just like, how can I be doing the things I'm doing? And this that's one event. There, there are a couple of others, too, that were a revisitable ground from uh, If I Die. Well, I'm glad you brought up the water buffalo one. Because, um, you know, at the beginning I mentioned I was such a fan. And I did two tours in Afghanistan. Um, I came back from my last tour in 2009, and then I got out of the Army in 2011. Uh, so it was like about four years later, five years after I came back from that last tour, I was listening to the audiobook of the things they carried, the one um, narrated by Brian Cranston. All right. I would listen to it on my commute to and from work. And one afternoon on the drive home, How to Tell a True War Story came on. Um, and at the end of the chapter, when you talk about having, you know, these nice little old ladies come up to you afterwards and after you've read the chapter right. and they tell you to put all the war stuff away and put it behind you, you write... I won't say it, but I'll think it. I'll picture at Kylie's face, his grief, and I'll think, you dumb coos, because she wasn't listening. It wasn't a war story. It was a love story. Um, man, I had to pull my car over because I began to sob uncontrollably, and it's the first time since I'd come back from Afghanistan that I had cried and I had like, really mourned because I didn't get it until that point. Um, and that statement of what's well, not a war story, it's a love story, is so powerful because I feel to some degree that you know, this isn't an absolute statement, but like when you're fighting a war, you're not necessarily fighting it because you hate the enemy. You're fighting it because you love the guys around you, you know? Very true. That was such an impactful, moving, uh, to me personally, the most beautifully written paragraph that I've ever read in my life. Uh, certainly the most impactful. Uh -huh. So I want to thank you for writing that. 
Well, thank you for saying that. And I know you understand the spirit that it was written in. I think it, it takes another person who's been in a circumstance like a war, maybe also a cancer ward, or is, if you've been through a divorce or all the tragedies we go through in our lives, unless you've, if somebody else has gone through it, you can't really make them feel it um, the way you do. You can hint at it, and you can try as hard as you can to make them feel what you feel. But unless the person's been through it, it's almost impossible thing to do. You'd almost have to put them in a movie theater and have a war movie going on, only there are machine gun bullets coming out of the screen at you. And then you might be able to feel a little bit of what terror is. And But unless you're in it, it's, it's, it's somehow outside of you. And so to hear you talk about it as a veteran yourself makes me feel good that I found, you know, one key member of the human race who understands the spirit in which it was written, that sense of the love you have for your fellow soldiers. Yeah, even the guys you hate, right? Even guys you hate. You can't stand them. You don't want to look at them. You don't ever see them again. But, you, I mean, you, you, this deep brotherly love for them. Yeah, you're still going to try to keep them alive. When we were going home, our first tour was 15 months. Like, when we left after that, I did not want to see another one of those guys' faces ever again in my life. But then we go on our leave for 30 days. At the end of that 30 days, I was like itching to get back to those guys. Like it was mm -hmm. part of me was missing. So it's like this weird, it's a weird catch 22, like everything in war almost. There's a great line in Michael Hur's dispatches and he talks about just what, what you just said. How uh, there's that, that you, you hate it when you're in it. And you can oftentimes hate the people around you. But then when it's over, you feel like you do when you're a kid and you think back on your sandbox and things and people you might not have liked playing in your sandbox. It's still your childhood. And that's how war feels like to me now. For my case, it's you know, decades ago. But I still feel the emotions of in the same way I look back on my childhood. I look back on Vietnam. Um, and it's all fresh and new. And the feelings are, well, you want to get back in the sandbox with your friends. Right. And, you know, I, I feel like veterans of like Iraq, Afghanistan and Vietnam, like we share this kinship almost like our fathers and grandfathers fought in like World War Two, you know, and there was you could argue a just war and they have very different feelings about their wars than we do. To a degree, I think the later generations like all conflicted over it. But just just from like, you know, the low hanging fruit of like not wearing a uniform, not knowing who the enemy is, but also the idea of like, can we win this thing? Um, there's just so many parallels between Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Like, when those two wars first yeah. kicked off, did you immediately envision them as like the new Vietnam? Pretty much instantaneously. I, I had a friend visiting me who was also a Vietnam veteran. And just by coincidence, on the day the Twin Towers came down, he called me to the television set and said, "Look what's happening." And maybe we watched it, you know, for 20 minutes before the first one fell. And, and he turned to me and said, "What do you? What do you?" Things going to happen. I said, I said Vietnam. I was hoping otherwise, and but something in my body was telling me that revenge will be exacted. So even if it's not against the people who did it, and we didn't take it out on the people who did it, we took it out on people who had nothing to do with it in Iraq. If we're going to attack somebody, we should have attacked Saudi Arabia or somewhere because most of them were Saudi Arabian. Right. <laughs> I mean. And as with Vietnam, I couldn't see a happy ending to it, and I still don't. I don't see an ending where it's going to be Iraq or Afghanistan or going to turn into models of parliamentary democracy or American-style democracy. They're 
background is too different and their values are different. Many of those people want theocracy. They want a theocratic government, and they believe in it. Right. Just as in Vietnam, they believed in, some of them anyway, believed in communism. They believed in it. It sure hell was better than a thousand years of feudalism going on there and landlords exactly not owning their own land. And Not that I'd want it. I wouldn't want a theocracy and I wouldn't want communism, but people are allowed to want what they want and you're not going to bomb them out of the stuff they want. Right. You just can't do it. And can you imagine, you know, ISIS landing in Pittsburgh and saying, we're going to turn you into a theocracy. Come on, everybody, get on, get on board, and let's all have a good theocratic day. I told I'd be here in, in half an hour. Let's all get ready to welcome him. I mean, it would, would, nobody would tolerate it. And yet we were trying to do something pretty much like that in both cases. And I don't see how there can be a happy ending to it, that where we're going to, or the things we're after are going to happen. That's a long answer to your question, but that was how I felt as the Twin Towers came down. I couldn't imagine a happy ending to it, a, a kind of VJ day or a VE day. I just couldn't see it happening. And, I, and in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, I still can't. Right. There may be an end. We may disengage. We may leave. But I don't think we're going to leave countries that are good models of, you know, stable democracy. Well, that's, that segues perfectly in this next question. It's a two-parter. And I've asked a, this question to many, many veterans of different eras. I've gotten wildly different answers from all of them. And I'm curious your thoughts on it. So... Both in Vietnam and Afghanistan, one of the primary objectives, other than you know killing the enemy, was to win the hearts and minds of the local population. So first, mm -hmm. is it possible to win a war when this is one of the objectives, given that the locals know that one day the U.S. will be gone, but the NVA or the Taliban will still be there? And second, does having hearts and minds as an objective indicate that the war is probably an immoral war to begin with? Yeah, I think you kind of have to have their hearts and minds before the war. I mean, that there's a desire on the part of... A country, Iraq, Afghanistan, France, whomever the, the country, whatever the country is, that you more or less want the things you want. But when people want theocracy and we want democracy, they're, they're not the same. They're not compatible. They don't go together. If somebody wants a religious government. That's a totally different thing to want. And I don't think so. There are hearts and minds. I don't think can be one. I think you can make them more resilient to, to and, and more opposed to the stuff that you want by using military means. I don't think it works. I can see sending missionaries or stuff like that, sort of nonviolent stuff and doing your best. I don't think that'll do much either. But I don't think you can bomb desires out of people. I think you harden their desires by doing it. And a lot of studies have proven that. During World War II, the more bombs we drop on Germany, the more the German people would say, we're going to stick it out, we're going to gut it out to the bitter end. And boy, did they. They did get it out to the bitter end, so they were occupied by the Russians and later by us. So I, I just, I, I'm just, I'm skeptical about the efficacy of military means. It doesn't mean I'm always skeptical, but in certain cases, it just doesn't seem like the way to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Totally. Um, I want to switch gears here for the last few questions. Um, and there's something you talk a lot about is your disdain for moral absolutism. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the current level of our national discourse where moral absolutism is so deeply embraced by both the left and the right? Yeah, it sickens me. Yeah, it just sickens me. Everybody thinks they're right about everything. There's a Bob Dylan song. I can't remember the name of it, but there's a line in here. Everybody, nobody's right if everybody's wrong. <laughs> everybody thinks they're right and, and, every, and everybody else is wrong. 
And it seems you're right. It just seems the contagion of absolutism that seems to take over a country that was founded in compromise and making the Constitution uh, that was tempered in the Civil War. And that our whole system, our Constitution and our, our, our history as a people has been organized around compromise. We'll get a little of what you want and we'll give you a little of what you want and we'll live the same way neighbors will compromise. And, you know, husband and wife will have to make compromises. And yet that seems to be gone. I don't think you could run a marriage the way you're (laughs) running our politics these days. It would collapse, fall apart. And at times it feels like that's happening. Well, one of the things we hear on the news a lot is, uh, you know, that right now, the nation is as divided as it's ever been. Do you think that's true? Do you think we're more divided now than we were during, you know, say, 1968, 1969? Good question. I don't know the answer. If I were to have to give an answer, I'd say it feels similar right now to how it felt back then. Uh, not identical, but back in Vietnam, the hard hats and those you know, who are supporting the war, there was no, there was no talking with them. There was beyond conversation, and it feels very much like that today, that Things feels beyond conversation, and it's there's a feeling of, to me now of sort of declaring, you know, one side declares what it wants, and the other side declares what it believes in, and no conversation about about it all. It, it feels like a, a hardened gulf that every year feels a little bit worse to me. And it does remind me of Vietnam, not identical, but it's got a, a similar sense of absolute division. So I want to thank you for doing this with us. And I've got one final question before we end. Our organization, Veterans Breakfast Club, what we do is we encourage veterans to share their stories through podcasts, through we do live storytelling events. Um, do you have any advice for younger vets? You know, we're, we're still not terribly too far removed from the conflict. Like a lot of guys want to write it down. They want to get their experience on paper, but it's hard to do that for, you know, a myriad of reasons. Some you've mentioned of, you know, there's holes in your memory. You're not sure what exactly happened. Right. Do you have any advice for like how to just start and should you worry about that? Should you worry about getting everything right? Should you worry about just focusing on the gist of it? I don't think you should worry about it now. I think you should be faithful to what to what you believe you saw and did and felt and thought to be faithful to it, but without absolutism. That's kind of what I try to do in my own memoir is I just try to be faithful to what I thought I'd seen and felt and thought during my time in Vietnam. And there's a lot to be said for for a contemporary memoir or a contemporary piece of fiction based on your life. Um, Later historical discovery may, may put a new spin on it. But the testimony of people who are freshly back from a war and are feeling the hurt and are grappling with ways to express the hurt even grappling with to understand the hurt. What am I hurt by? Why, why do I think about it late at night? Why, am I, why am I not thinking about my girlfriend? Or why am I not thinking about the new car I'm going to buy tomorrow? You're grappling with, in a way you're grappling with your own soul and your own spirit. Then it's not even so much the war as it is who am I and why did I do what I did? without any kind of absolute answers. A lot of guys say, well, I I know why I went to the war, no matter what war it is, Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, the Civil War. Many say I went because I wanted to serve my country. 
And others will say, I went because my dad had gone before me and my grandfather, and I was following a family tradition. There are all kinds of answers to that, but I don't think there's an absolute one answer. I think it's, it has to do with our childhoods and how committed we are to doing the right thing. It's just a whole stew of stuff that sends people off to war. I don't think it's one thing. And a good memoir, my advice is to be faithful to what you believe you went through and don't... Uh, don't pretty it up. If you don't understand something, and say so in your story. I don't know why the hell I went. It might have been this, but I'm not sure that was all of it. Right. I hear a lot of guys from my war, and probably you hear it too, that went because their fathers went or their grandfathers had. And I keep thinking, well, yeah, but what if your grandfather was Adolf Eichmann or your father? <laughs> Would you go gas people? Right. So that can't be all of it. You know, it might be part of it. <laughs> I wouldn't, if my dad were Adolf Eichmann, I wouldn't go, you know, sending people to concentration camps. And sometimes those simple answers are just so full of flaws that it's kind of cool in a, in a memoir or a piece of fiction. And you're recently returned from a war to sort of grapple with, you know, why the hell out did I even go and try to really seriously understand what, what it was? And you'll never quite get there, but it's, I, think it's, I think it's worth doing. Another thing I would suggest for people who are starting to write is, is you've got to be two things for sure. You've got to be incredibly stubborn. Writing is hard. Making sentences is hard. And you mostly fail. You write bad sentences and you recognize what's bad in them and then you try to do it again and again until a line appears on the page that finally, after you know, a week's worth of work, seems worth keeping. It seems, well, I can't say it any better. And then and that requires real stubbornness. And so I'd, I'd recommend that those who return from Afghanistan or Iraq be patient and be stubborn, but have high standards for yourself. I want to say something freshly, not something I borrowed from another book or you know some cliche. I want to say it my way, and that means you got to sit on your ass in front of a piece of paper or a computer for years on end, really, to, until you finally get something you think is is all your own, says what you want it to say, and says it as beautifully as you can say it. You commented that you sit there right and sometimes a sentence will pop out to you. Is it, I think I've heard you say before, like, I think that's how you started like, uh, writing how to tell a true war story. Like you wrote the sentence, like this next story is true. Some of that effect. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, Oh, that's interesting. And then you wrote the next sentence, which was completely untrue. And then right, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. It goes back to what you and I were talking about like a half an hour ago. Like, you know, but what really happened? What's true? And I remember writing those three words. This is true, period. And as soon as I wrote it, two questions came. Number one, what does the word this mean? Like, I had no idea what I was even writing about. I just wrote the words. What is the this part? And secondly, what does the word true mean? <laughs> and I'm not ever sure about what's true. And even about myself, I'm not sure, much less other people. And that interested me because it was like an exploration. I'm going to find out by writing more sentences what the word this refers to. And it goes to Rat Kylie, you know, writing a letter to the girlfriend of a sister of a friend who died. That was the this part. The true part was harder. And that's partly what the story is about. What in this world can we really say is true and use that word? And each time you remember some of that, it might be true in a different kind of way. And that's a lot of what happens to me, especially late at night, thinking back on it, is, is well, 
it may not have literally happened the way I remembered it. He said, I remember all of it. And then the next day I'll remember, or next night I'll remember it a completely different way. Right. And different feelings and so on. And I think that's part of what human memory is. It's imperfect. And it's constantly, you're constantly learning stuff that, that puts the truth in jeopardy. Your girlfriend fucks you over and leaves you, and pretty after it's over, she didn't even fuck you over. You fucked yourself over, and you learn that. And then next night, next night, maybe we'd be back to, well, maybe we both did it. And it'll go on for eternity, that constantly refining what we call the truth. But patience is, uh, and stubbornness are two things that I think you really have to have to, uh, to write about probably more anything, but especially a war. Speaking of truth, do you feel that the things they carried gives a a more or a truer picture of your experience than the the factual account of if I die in a combat zone? Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. It captures better how I felt the the emotions of it all, the uncertainty that I had about virtually everything, the war, myself, the people around me, the cause that we were purportedly fighting for. There's an uncertainty that I felt inside me, um, this tumbling kind of lost feeling, trying to grapple trying to grapple with even my own emotions that isn't present as much in uh, If I Die as it is in The Things They Carry. So if I had to say which is the truer book, I'd say Things They Carry, even though 90% of it or more is, is invented. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we really look forward to seeing you in November at the Peters Township Library. Hope we go have a beer together or something when I'm out there. That would be a dream come true for me. <laughs> okay, we'll see you then, Nick. All right, thank Tim. you. Take care. Tim O'Brien said he wanted to have a beer with me, man. <laughs> <laughs> you got to start drinking beer. <laughs> I'll have a gin and tonic. joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app. That's the problem, Mom. I'm not dead. I gotta live. I gotta live and I gotta roll around. I gotta remind them of Vietnam. And you don't wanna know. You don't wanna see us. You wanna hide us. You wanna hide us because it is a can of shit. And I am a fucking dummy. He won't listen. He won't change. Ronnie, please. You gotta take your mom seriously. You can't drink in this house. they told us. Go fight. Go kill. Sergeant man, rain car. Yes, go left. Go left. Go left. You know, it's all a lie, Lord. Why? Stop it! Go to bed. You sleep it off. What did they do to you in that war? What happened to you? You need help, Ronnie. You need no, help. You need help. 
with all your God and your bullshit dreams about me. Wake up the whole you are ashamed of me. You're embarrassed by me. You go give me some air. Let me talk to him, all right? You go to bed. Fuck you! What did you say to me? What did you say to me? Police we this went time. to Vietnam to stop communism. We, sh we shot women and children. You didn't shoot women and children. What do you say? What said the war? Communism, the insidious evil. They, that's what they told us. us to go. Yes, that's what they told us. Thou shalt not kill, mom. Thou shalt not kill women and children. Thou shalt not kill. Remember. Isn't that what you taught us? Isn't stop that it. what they taught stop us? Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! I don't want you in this house. You're out of this house. Ron, come on now. You made your point, now stop. No! I haven't made my point, you tell her, Dad. They're killing everyone now. I didn't force you to go. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Mom. And it's all falling apart. King Kennedy, Kent State. Hey, man. We all lost the fucking war. It's not my fault. Fucking communism won. It's all for nothing. It's not true, Ronnie. How do you know? What do you know? Ron. You tell her, Dad! Tell her! It's a lie! It's a fucking lie! There's no God! God is as dead as my legs! There's no God! There's no country! It's just me in his fucking wheelchair for the rest of my life!